and welcome or welcome back to the Technicast, the podcast that celebrates and explores current research being done in the arts and humanities. We're back after a brilliant couple of episodes, guest edited by Joe Jukes, which showcased some of the wonderful work presented at the Outsiders Conference at the University of Brighton, exploring topics of sex, gender and queerness at the margins, so do go get back and give those a little listen if you haven't done so already. Today, we're very excited to be presenting a roundtable conversation with the organisers of a series of seminars and workshops based around the idea of imaginative confrontations with Shakespeare that engages with ideas of justice, truth, law, silence, consent, reconciliation and bearing witness, focusing on Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure, a dark comedy that has been described as one of his problem plays. Led by Dr. Beth Palmer, Professor Robert Shognessy, and postgraduate researcher Alicia Barnes at the University of Surrey, this series asked, how do we forgive the unforgivable, and who gets to say whether we should or not? It looks back to Shakespeare to think through some of these issues and how they intersect with our contemporary moments, interrogating the literary and cultural canon in order to address the injustices that he has either excused or obscured. Throughout the episode, you'll also hear Measure for Measure brought to life with scenes acted out by Darren Tunstall, who played the Duke. Uh, Brian Yangen voicing Mariana, Emily Potter Davis voicing Isabella, Rebecca Helen who played Juliet, Aaron Hodgetts playing Barnardine, as well as a scene written in a workshop led by theatre maker Chinunira Modimba. We hope you enjoy. So I'll just provide a little bit of context in terms of the, the kind of larger conflux and the seminar that preceded our workshop. So the conflux on uh, blame and Black Lives Matter, responsibility for historical wrongs, new perspectives for the humanities and arts, um, brings together researchers, different career stages in law, music, philosophy, drama and literature, and kind of wants to provide a sort of reflective space to think about conceptions of self, of responsibility, of blame and was inspired by things like the Black Lives Matter protests, the pulling down of the statue of the slave trader uh, Edward Colston in Bristol Harbour and wants to inspire conversations coming out of the contemporary scenarios that we find ourselves in but also that look back to the kind of roots of those injustices, those those wrongs. So the first seminar that took place earlier on in the year was around blame, history and truth and brought together historians, lawyers, philosophers thinking through the kind of legal and ethical problems of attempting to get or create justice for historical wrongs. Um, And Catherine Liu and Daniel Butts were our invited speakers and were thinking about historic injustice and thinking about whether there are these two kinds of um, injustice, interactional injustice and structural injustice. And usually interactional, the interactional model has kind of been most sort of used and thought through because it kind of gives you a direct line of responsibility. But actually there are lots of kind of past conflicts, past wrongs in which responsibility, culpability are not very easy to place, to figure out. A lot of time has passed since those injustices happened. Familial connections might have disappeared, been eroded. So this kind of structural framework which thinks about 
the, the wider structures of injustice, not just the instances of injustice and how they are kind of passed down, were, were thought about and debated in this uh, seminar. And so those kind of theoretical, legal, philosophical ideas of injustice then really fed into our workshop, in which, which was called Imaginative Confrontations with Shakespeare, justice, truth and reconciliation. And we were really, I guess, thinking about the theatre as a space in which questions of self, agency, blame, moral worth, truth and reconciliation could be thought through very productively, very interestingly, very creatively. There are lots of models of this having happened in uh, contemporary theatre, thinking about something like Selina Thompson's Salt or Debbie Tucker Green's Truth and Reconciliation as kind of you know, just some examples of, of many plays that kind of enter into that field and enter into that domain. So we were really trying to grapple with and get our head around some of these very, very difficult problems. And I know Rob is going to speak in a moment about why we felt Shakespeare and Measure for Measure offered a really interesting text through which to work some of those really intransigent questions and a way in which we could kind of think practically about those theoretical questions that had been raised in the previous seminar. And we were lucky enough to have a contemporary playwright come and speak with us and work with us and, and run our workshop. So Alicia, I know you want, you're going to talk a little bit about her work. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, like, like Beth said, we really wanted to, to approach this workshop with those theoretical ideas, with those philosophical ideas discussed at the first seminar in mind. And we had some fantastic discussion, good discussions with um, Chin and Yara Madimba um, in, in the planning of this, this event. We were so, so lucky to, to, to get her on board. Um, so Chinon Yerim uh, is a multidisciplinary writer, director and theatre maker. Um, throughout her career, she's been shortlisted for and won numerous awards, including the 2018 Channel 4 Playwriting Award um, and most recently the Writers Guild Award for Best Mu Musical Theatre Book Writing for her play Black Love, um, which I will also say I went to go see a, a couple of months ago and it was absolutely fantastic. So if it ever tours again, I think it's finished now. Um, do, do go and check it out. She has produced shows um, in theatre and on screen, working with the Royal Shakespeare Company, Kiln Theatre in London, and is chair at Theatre Bristol. She's also the artistic director and CEO of Theatre for Hodsey, a home for British African heritage artists and audiences. So really, we, got, we, we, we brought Chinon Yeron in to help us think through creatively, as, as a professional uh, creative practitioner, to help us think through these, these questions about historical wrongs, about truth and justice and reconciliation. So our event um, was a practi practically based workshop addressing those questions and, and, and trying to test them by, by really getting them on their feet through this, this play. Uh, more broadly, the workshop explored the possibilities uh, uh, of the arena of performance to set philosophy in action and of the literary and cultural canon to be repurposed um, in addressing these historical wrongs that um, it may have excused, concealed or evaded. And so we, we turned to Measure for Measure as entryway into these questions and, and provocations. So Rob, do you want to tell us a bit more about 
Yes, yeah, this was... I mean, sort of turning to Shakespeare seemed a, a kind of obvious thing to do in the sense that the whole sort of setup of, of, of this workshop and the series of workshops is, is about the idea of a, a conversation between scholars, researchers, practitioners in, in a whole range of fields. I suppose primarily sort of law and arts and humanities. And it seems we, we were looking for some kind of, sort of common ground in the sense of and that Shakespeare seemed to be a natural choice in the sense of people so there's already kind of sense of shared knowledge shared ownership of Shakespeare and also I suppose the sense that Shakespeare has has this kind of legacy this kind of heritage as, as being sort of canonically central to if we're just sort of thinking about the, the sort of our content the UK context in terms of UK culture and literature and theatre uh, but as as a sort of part of that formation there there is this very strong awareness that Shakespeare has historically, traditionally been a kind of contested vehicle for the transmission of values. Uh, and those values can be sort of either values which serve the interests of, of those who have perpetrated injustice, or they can be values which have kind of interrogated those. And Shakespeare has long had that kind of very sort of complex and, and fluid position. So so there was kind of there was a sense that Shakespeare was there kind of for the taking as something that if, if like a sort of canon of work that, that could be that's just kind of appropriated, contested, repurposed to sort of think about how do we, as I mean, as Beth used the, the word intransigent, we address these, these very kind of intransigent questions about injustice historically and, and how one starts to sort of fix that, how to, to repair that. So there is a sort of general sense there. Um, so there's, there's also a more specific sense with measure, for measure, you know, as, as a play which is kind of directly engaged with the law, the law both both as a sort of an actual sort of judicial system that sort of is, is in action in, in the play uh, and also with I suppose more kind of abstract ideas about justice and mercy and reconciliation and forgiveness and I think one of the really sort of interesting things about, it's about Shakespeare but about this play is that it doesn't provide easy answers or, or even not sort of clear answers to the, the problems I and mean, it's for a long time it's called a problem play for all sorts of reasons, in the sense that the, the sort of content is, is, is for a play that's nominally generically a comedy it is very dark. You know, so it's, it's dealing with uh, sex work and execution and really sort of challenging material. So, uh, and then it kind of sets up the, the uh, within this sort of framework the, the, these the, these conflicts between, I suppose, the sort of absoluteness of law and uh, as an abstraction, and then the sort of the contradictory messiness of human beings sort of sort of working their way through those systems. So there's a whole sort of lot of reasons there. And there's, there's, there's another sort of specific thing which I we sort of come back to later on is, is to do with the particular angle that we took in terms of the scenes and the characters that we chose. But I think that's, that's probably enough for now in terms of sort of setting up the kind of general reasons for this play. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it is a play that has, you know, for Shakespeare scholars, it's very kind of well-known and very kind of frequently debated I guess but for those of us outside of it I think it does offer some really interesting lenses around these big themes particularly as you say of justice but I guess also I mean linking to your last point Rob we wanted to use the workshop to enable us to kind of think about the positionality to think about the less regarded or perhaps the less vocal characters in the play so obviously the Duke and Angelo are these figures of the law, figures of justice, figures of male authority, and their power is 
you know, pretty full on. You know, there's very few people who can stand up to them, and that's one of the things the play um, explores. But there, there are people who stand up to them, and there are people who use silence, particularly as a way of talking back to power without necessarily talking. And that was one of the one of the things we discussed, the kind of open silences in the play, where and who, you know, who activates those silences, how they might be uncomfortable for the authority figures within the play, how those silences might question what is just uh, and, and who the justice is kind of being given by and given for. So I don't know if Alicia or Rob, you wanted to talk about any of those moments that, that kind of we, we spoke to particularly. Well, yes. Well, they, they, I mean, that was one of um, that was one of Chin and Yerim's, um provocations, wasn't it? That, that questioning those open silences that are both very visible and audible in the play. And of course, I think that probably the most obvious one is that final scene, that final moment where there's that potential for reconciliation through marriage, you know, between the Duke and Isabella. And there's no that the play is left open the play it is it is questioned you know you don't know whether justice you don't know whether reconciliation has been made you don't know whether she that that silence is consent if that's the right word to use or whether it is a, a, a sign of forgiveness um i think certainly now in, in our contemporary moment it it certainly wouldn't be be taken as that and that's kind of part of why it, it, it's now con or now considered a you know a problem play that we ha we don't have those concrete answers to where the play finishes and, and where it goes. Um, Rob, did you want to? Well, I was thinking. I mean, Juliet is a sort of probably a sort of less often noticed example of a, of a silent character who who is a significant presence in a, in various scenes. Where so Juliet is the. A uh, young woman who has been in a relationship with Claudio, who is the young man who's condemned to, to die for fornication, um, and and she's pregnant. So so that's that's already a sort of uh, a kind of interesting sort of bit of Shakespearean realism in the sense that a pregnancy is occurring in this world. And uh, I think there's there's perhaps something not accidental about Shakespeare use, re, reusing the name Juliet, you know, for a character who is, is the sort of, in, in many ways, very far removed from the, the Juliet that everybody knows. But so the Juliet, she, she, the first scene she comes on, she, she's, she is silent throughout the whole scene where, where these sort of various men kind of talk about her predicament, talk about her situation, talk about Claudio's situation. And, and all she can do is listen. And then when she next comes on, she has a scene with the Duke who's disguised as, as a friar and he, he's, uh, in this role of sort of trying to extract some kind of repentance, confession, whatever, from, from Juliet. And she sort of doesn't, doesn't give him sort of what he's, what he's asking for, in, in a sense. That, that we, we're sort of very aware that she is the person that will live with the consequences of this sex that she's had with, with Claudio. But um, there's a curious, she only has sort of, you know, maybe sort of a dozen lines in total, but probably less than that. But the, the Duke is kind of pressing her to, to sort of apologise, repent. And, and she comes out, she says, I do repent me as it is an evil and take the shame with joy. And that seems that, that seems a really kind of intriguing, shame with joy, pairing. And, and that, that's, I suppose, sort of, again, in, in some ways sort of typical of, of, of the sort of things that the play is playing with in terms of those kind of antitheses. Repent you, fair one, 
of the sin you carry. I do, and bear the shame most patiently. I'll teach you how you shall arraign your conscience, and try your penitence, if it be sound or hollowly put on. I'll gladly learn. Love you, the man that wronged you. Yes, as I love the woman that wronged him. So then, it seems, your most offenceful act was mutually committed. Mutually. Then was your sin of heavier kind than his. I do confess it, and repent it, father. Tis meet so, daughter, but lest you do repent as that the sin hath brought you to this shame, which sorrow is always towards ourselves, not heaven, showing we would not spare heaven as we love it, but as we stand in fear. I do repent me, as it is an evil, and take the shame with joy. There rest. Your partner, as I hear, must die tomorrow, and I am going with instruction to him. Grace go with you. Benedicity. Must I tomorrow? O oh, injurious love, that respites me a life whose very comfort is still a dying horror. And, and then Juliet is tricked into believing that Claudio has been executed. And then she finds out at the end of the play that he hasn't. Uh, and again, there's, there's, she doesn't have any words. There's, there's, there's a kind of silence there which actors can kind of inhabit or, or animate in, in all sorts of ways. But I suppose that, that there's a way in which that silence can also offer a kind of agency. And it's the, the agency that, that we uh, or the actors might assign to it. But it, we were drawn to the idea of looking at Juliet and, and other so-called minor characters precisely because they were easy to overlook. Absolutely. And you saying that now, I mean, I'm, I'm now kind of reading other things into that silence that kind of have become perhaps even more pertinent since mm -hmm. we did the workshop, now thinking about women's reproductive rights and what's going on in the US at the moment and thinking about the ways in which historically women's bodies have been coerced, forced into positions of sterilisation, forced abortion, um, how women have frequently across the passage of history paid the price in, in their bodies, on their bodies. And often that has been silenced and repressed and those those actions have, have not kind of seen justice. So, you know, even over the course of a, a few months that, that silence, Juliet's silence is kind of speaking to us perhaps even more emotively, even more strongly than it was just a few months ago. So I think that, you know, that those, those silences are often moments where I think an audience feels that connection with what's going on in the play and their present moment. You know, they're left in that little bit of discomfort, left to feel those connections in a way that might be kind of uncomfortably bodily, that might kind of really make them think about themselves, might make us think about our own um, participation in systems or our own kind of quietness when we have um, perhaps not spoken up moments that we should have done, not, not called out wrongs or injustice. It makes us kind of sit in our own silence in quite kind of um, problematic ways. Yes, and I think that, that really speaks to some of the, the other provocations that Chin and Yaram gave us. So one of them being, how do we ensure that marginal voices are represented in a le legal framework that favors the powerful? You know this. 
if the law is there, it's you know designed to protect people, it's designed to serve people, but it has been written by people and it has been based on systems of society that have evolved from these these systems that produced historical wrongs and and um, and injustices. So how do we how do we bring in the voices, those silenced voices, uh, into that legal framework? And I you know, you know that's incredibly pertinent with with what's going on in the U.S. as well. And also just thinking about whether or not truth and reconciliation are possible are possible ways of reclaiming or reimagining these classical texts. But actually, do we need to reconcile them? Do, we, do they need to have a conclusion or should we be sitting with that discomfort? Should we be using that? Should we, should we be using that to, to think about our contemporary moment rather than perhaps, I don't know, trying to hide from it or tidy things up? You know, I think it was Rob saying earlier that, you know, this is a very, very human, very messy, situation law society you know nothing is nothing is clear cut so would you know tying the knot on 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 this play on these these issues actually be helpful or should we be using that discomfort uh, and that lack of reconciliation that open-endedness maybe to push forward um to push further questions to push further provocations um and use that to, to move maybe social justice forward I think that's, uh, yes, very much so in, in terms of the open-endedness. I mean, and I, I mean, famously, this is one of the things about the so-called problem plays, measure of measure being one of them, that, that why it was a problem was, was that in, in terms of how it didn't fit in terms of genre, you know, that comedy classically ends with marriage, and that is some kind of resolution, some kind of conclusion. And the, that sort of, although it technically happens in, in measure of measure, it doesn't quite. And, and, and as we said, there, there is one very big unanswered question in the sense that the Duke makes an offer to Isabella of marriage, which is not clearly reciprocated, should we say. So, and I actually think, uh, Alicia, that, that seems to be the right way forward is, is to sort of keep hold of that, that sense of irresolution and ambiguity, but leaving us in, in a uncomfortable place. And I was thinking, well, while Beth was talking about the idea of our own complicity or, or, or whatever, the, the, the sort of moment in the final scene where uh, Mariana is, feels compelled to, to kneel down, to beg for mercy for the life of Angela. And it's, it's also a sort of very kind of high stakes moment in terms of, uh, there, there's all this burden of expectation upon Mariana the character, the actor playing sort of Mariana, to, to, to make that gesture. Uh, and I suppose that there's any amount of tension that's possible in, in terms of, sort of holding that moment, so will she, won't she? Um, but I think that there is, there is a sense that Mariana kneels and then begs, implores Isabella to kneel as well. And again, that there's a similar tension in that moment, will she or won't she sort of kneel down to beg for mercy for um, Angelo's life? Away with him. Oh, my most gracious lord, I hope you will not mock me with a husband. It is your husband mocked you with a husband. We do instate and widow you withal to buy you a better husband. Oh, my dear lord, I crave no other, nor no better man. Never crave him, we are definitive. Gentle, my liege. You do but lose your labour. 
Away with him to death. Oh, my good lord, sweet Isabel, take my part. Lend me your knees, and all my life to come, I'll lend you all my life to do you service. Against all sense, you do importune her. Should she kneel down in mercy of this fact, her brother's ghost, his paved bed would break, and take her hence in horror. Isabel, sweet Isabel, do yet but kneel by me. Hold up your hands, say nothing, I'll speak all. They say best men are moulded out of faults, and for the most become much more the better for being a little bad. So may my husband. Oh, Isabel, will you not lend a knee? He dies for Claudio's death. Most bounteous sir, look, if it please you, on this man condemned as if my brother lived. I partly think a due sincerity governed his deeds till he did look on me. Since it is so, let him not die. My brother had but justice in that he did the thing for which he died. For Angelo, his act did not overtake his bad intent, and must be buried but as an intent that perished by the way. Thoughts are no subjects. Intents, but merely thoughts. Merely, my lord. I think that there's the possibility that, that, that those characters are sort of proxy for us, for the spectators, for the audience at that moment. So there's, here we are, kind of sort of sitting in the dark watching this thing. And, and I suppose we are equally kind of compromised and challenged in, in terms of what intervention is possible. Of course, we can't because we're, 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 we're onlookers, we're witnesses, we're spectators. But in the sense that the idea of being a kind of witness to a theatre moment is quite an interesting kind of t- uh, term, I think, because there's something more to it than simply being a spectator or being an audience. If you're a witness, then then you have a kind of complicity, you have a kind of responsibility in in the event and what the event kind of signifies. Uh, so there's all this, the, the part of the sort of thinking around using measure for measure, but that in a way, measure for measure is a kind of uh, placeholder or kind of stand-in for, for all the other sort of larger kind of issues around injustice and reconciliation that this particular seminar is about and the series of seminars more more broadly is about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that notion of bearing witness is an incredibly important one to those kind of larger themes. Um, and thinking about how, you know, the ethical and moral and kind of emotional implications of bearing witness, because, you know, the idea that, that we as an audience are are we complicit because we see this or is there then an uh, impetus is there is there then having seen something that we feel is wrong or difficult or problematic or, or that needs kind of further thought is it then incumbent upon us as witnesses to do something about that but of course often those people who've witnessed um, a historical wrong or an injury or an injustice or a war or a conflict are not always in the position to be able to come forward and give testimony because they have been injured themselves, because they are suffering from traumatic uh, injuries, because they are disenfranchised in some way or marginalised in some way and not all systems of justice will listen to those people. So I think that's one of the other things the play is really interested in, this idea of um, justice with a capital J or law with a capital L 
as kind of embodied by the duke you know and uh, you know as embodied by someone wearing a wig or you know the justice on the law courts the statue the, the blinded woman and you know what what does that symbol mean you know it's all very well having that symbol that's kind of divorced from people but then when that power is kind of given to angelo and put into a real person things go horribly wrong because people are a mess <laughs> because people do things wrong act immorally you know, throw over their old lovers without a second thought so the idea of kind of justice as somehow apart from our conflicted morally ambiguous world i think is one that the this play really spears in a sense you know it always comes back to the human complexity that troubles those bigger systems and structures yeah and one thing that one of our um, colleagues in law brought up in within the um within the workshop was thinking about i suppose rob um just like you were saying that the audience as as witnesses but also uh, on the podcast, you won't be able to see this. We're in the wonderful court of the court of the future in the in the law department at the University of Surrey, which is where we based the the workshop. And so you've got this this spatial realization of um, the, the system of law. You have spaces for the jury, for the prosecutors, for the defence, for the judge. Um, and we were thinking through: Can the audience be be witnesses? Be be a jury can they can do they have the right to pass judgment on um, Angelo on the Duke? Do they have the right to, to tell Isabella how she should react? Should she forgive Angelo? Should she kneel or should she stay silent and, and resistant in in that way? I'm, I'm not sure whether we we got to an answer of that. Um, if we thought it might be quite an interesting performance style that that you you involve that the audience in that way to, to force them to to come to terms with actually what's happening on stage and the choices that that these characters are having to make i don't know whether someone will put on a performance of measure for measure in the near future i'd like to go see it <laughs> well that was uh, that was something that appealed to us in terms of having the workshop in the course of the future it was this idea that um I sort of see it, it's very much a kind of a stage set, isn't it? I mean, it, it is this, this kind of exact replica of a working courtroom, uh, except it's, 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 it's not, it's a rehearsal, it's not a courtroom, it's a, a place in which the law is rehearsed. Uh, and that's where there's a sort of another sense of uh, where there's the connection here is that we're all kind of interested in the idea of, of law as performance, you know, the, 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 the actual law being performative, you know, that, that uh, certain things are said um, within a, in a particular kind of setting, but then assume the force of law and, and that, uh, that there is sort of judging, witnessing all sort of all of the parties involved in any kind of kind of legal sort of trial situation are performing. I mean, that, that's in a way, that's a sort of very obvious kind of point, but it's, it's something that there's something I think sort of really rich uh, that we can sort of go into sort of explore in terms of going back to that idea that we, we're having this conversation across disciplines and, and across the law and theatre and the arts um, and sort of between practitioners, researchers uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Although we did talk about one character who refuses to perform, right? We talked about Barnardine, didn't we, in the workshop, mm. as um, a character who mm. is kind of drunk and criminal and smells bad. Um, 
uh, <laughs> and he was made the tempting offer of being beheaded so that his head can be used in a trick to uh, in place of Angelo. And he says, no, thanks. <laughs> he says, no, actually, I don't really want to do that. Um, I'm fine. I'll, I'll stay in prison for a while longer, alive. Master Barnardine, you must rise and be hanged, Master Barnardine. A pox on your throats. Who makes that noise there? What are you? Your friends, sir. The hangman. You must be so good, sir, to rise and be put to death. Away, you rogue. Away. I am sleepy. Pray, Master Barnardine, awake till you are executed and sleep afterwards. How now? What's the news with you? Truly, sir, I would desire you to clap into your prayers. For look you, the warrants come. You rogue, I have been drinking all night. I am not fitted for it. Oh, the better, sir, for he that drinks all night and is hanged betimes in the morning may sleep the sounder all the next day. Sir, induced by my charity, and hearing how hastily you are to depart, I am come to advise you comfort you and pray with you friar not i i've been drinking hard all night and i will have more time to prepare me or they shall beat out my brains with billets i will not consent to die this day that's certain oh sir you must and therefore i beseech you look forward on the journey you shall go i swear i will not die today for any man's persuasion but hear you not a word. If you have anything to say to me, come to my ward, for thence will not I today. And he refuses to kind of join in. He refuses to be part of this very odd trick that, but that, the trick that is the, is supposedly going to ultimately bring a kind of just ending, and we were we were interested in the way Barnardine sort of offers a, a perspective of somebody from outside. I think um, outside of those systems who doesn't seem to be invested in them in in any <laughs> in any way. Um, yeah, no, I was thinking because that there was that, that there is this thing that Barnardine kind of refuses to play the role he's supposed to play, you know, kind of within the judicial system, but also within the play. You know, he's supposed to be this, well, it's not the mistake, it's the stroke of genius that Shakespeare makes, is bringing Barnardine on stage. You know, that, that, that if they talked about this this figure off stage, then him being beheaded wouldn't have registered in quite the same way. But the minute he's brought on, he's a human being, um, he's kind of repulsive, but there's a kind of vulnerability there. And, and, and so it kind of derails the play. He has this life... Which is larger than the than it's the, the role that's been allotted for him within the, the way the story is supposed to go. But well, that was what I think that then sort of led on to Chino's activity that we sort of culminated the workshop in, which, which was where she she proposed the idea that we take these characters that we we chosen to look at um, and try to imagine them in a situation beyond the play. Uh, sort of thinking about if Juliet and Barnardine were to meet, they don't meet in the play. And so if they were to meet at some point beyond the play, what would they say to each other? 
Um, and that seemed to be that that was a very a kind of liberating exercise, wasn't it? And it's a sort of th- and it, a way of thinking outside of you know, the, the sort of I suppose the kind of restrictions of the play. And the play is already sort of challenging all of its own sort of structures and restrictions. But that, that seemed to be a wonderfully kind of say, liberating and creative exercise. Yes, definitely thinking about these two characters whose whose identities within the play are so um, so predicated on what the law thinks of them, on how the law is is processing them, and so to remove them from that that legal system and, and to let them be whoever they are was was I think yeah really really successful, um, and we wrote some 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 fun fun little scenes for them afterwards. Absolutely. How's it going, Julia? Just into it all? I don't know. I still feel this shadow over me. Guilt? Honestly, I'm scared. I don't know what to do with this freedom, and I don't know what to do with it alone. Oh, come on, love. We're free, after all. Let's try to enjoy it. It's true that the women around here have more opportunities. I've seen them in the library, in the classroom, everywhere. But I can't figure out my place here. I'm still carrying the weight of this child. I don't want to get away from it. But I also feel like there's no way I can escape. Look, Juliet, I get you. There's a self of mine that I must let go of. But first, I will finish this drink. Tomorrow, I will be free. And I will be free when this child grows up. But that doesn't help me right now. There's no point in looking that far ahead. You're free to enjoy your burger right now, aren't you? Not bad. Not bad. I hope you enjoyed this fantastic conversation between Beth, Rob and Alicia. If you've not yet had quite enough of Shakespeare, can I invite you to scroll back through our last couple of Technicast episodes and have a listen to Kate O'Leary's work on alchemy, Shakespeare and surrealism if you like this one. A huge thanks to Beth, Rob and Alicia for their time and work on this episode and to all the actors who brought those scenes from Measure for Measure to life. Thanks also to Techni for their ongoing support and thanks to you for listening. We'll be back soon with more guest edited episodes reflecting on the recent symposium at Royal Holloway around the theme of being beyond human as well as themed episodes planned around the ideas of engagement, archives and parody. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with us about joining Technicast or to discuss your work on here, or if you'd like to suggest a research theme for us to explore, please do get in touch with us. I'll leave our email address in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and take care.